morning again, 59th Street family. We welcome those of you who are joining us a little bit later, whether in person or on online. And as we mentioned, we are starting our Lenten season, and we're also starting a new sermon series titled, Not By Bread Alone. I think this is by far my most favorite sermon image um, so far. And in our sermon series, Not By Bread Alone, we're going to be exploring and going through the ministry of Jesus leading all the way up to the day of Easter and find out how it is only God who can bring restoration and transformation in our day-to-day -day lives, more than just by bread alone. Now, before Jesus starts his ministry, we know that Jesus, he was baptized, and then he was subsequently, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tested. He was led by the Spirit. And this is a very significant point because it shows us that Jesus was led into the wilderness because temptation and suffering were part of God's plan for Jesus' ministry. And the wilderness is a place in Scripture that is often used to kind of represent a place of trial, of testing, and preparation. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were tested for 40 years in the wilderness. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist, he prepared, he began his ministry in the wilderness in order to prepare the way for Christ. And this wilderness experience of testing or temptation is very common experience for Christians. Uh, some people, they literally call it the wilderness experience, whereas other people might call it the dark night of the soul. But it's essentially a period of intense trial and temptation where the presence of God seems to be hidden or out of sight. And today, I kind of want to share with you all a story of a missionary named Gladys Aylward, who went through a very literal trial of wilderness, and she learned that salvation in this life and in the life to come can only be found in God. Now, Gladys Aylward, in the middle uh, over there, she was born in 1902 in London, England, and Gladys, she never had any sort of formal theological training outside of going to Sunday school as a, as a kid and maybe coming to church on Sundays along with some Bible study groups. But in her late 20s, Gladys, she read in a newspaper about how millions of people in China have never heard of the gospel. And despite having zero theological training, zero missionary training, having no money whatsoever, she was absolutely determined to go. She felt this is where God really wanted her to be. And so she saved up every penny she got serving as a household servant until she had enough funds to go to China, where she actually started an orphanage. Now, unfortunately, in her midst, in her time in China, uh, disaster, unfortunately, struck. China was in the middle of a civil war, and then all of a sudden, Japan declared war on China. However, Gladys, being a very stubborn Christian, she originally refused to leave her city and refused to leave her orphanage because she believed that Christians should never retreat in the face of danger. But as she was doing her Bible study reading um, one night, her eyes fell on a couple of particular words. She read in her Bible, flee, flee ye, flee ye into the mountains. And on that very night, the Japanese arrived in the city of Yangcheng, where she was staying. 
And so Gladys, she gathered a hundred or so orphans uh, with her from that danger, and she led them on a long and dangerous journey into the wilderness through the mountains of China. She had to sneak past enemy Japanese soldiers as well as Chinese communist soldiers, and for days they would travel with little to no food or water. Uh, but Gladys, she would not give up. She would refuse to give up in the midst of this wilderness experience. She constantly trusted that God would protect her and guide her. And as Gladys and her hundreds of orphans made it to the Yellow River on the 12th day of the journey, they were absolutely exhausted. They did not eat for days. And they realized that the only way to get to safety was to cross this river. However, as you can see, it's pretty enormous river. You can't cross it through foot, and it's way too rapid as well. And as a result, Gladys, she was momentarily struck by a loss of faith. She was unsure of what to do and why God had led her into this situation, when all of a sudden, one of her orphans spoke up and asked Gladys something only a child can really ask. She asked Gladys, do you believe that Moses carried the children of Israel across the Red Sea? And Gladys said, yes, of course I do. Then the child, again, something only a child can ever imagine saying, the child asked, then why don't we go across? And this obviously shocked Gladys, as it would shock anyone. Like, what do you mean, go across the river? Like, are you crazy? And Gladys told the little girl, I'm not Moses. But the little girl replied, of course you're not Moses, but God is still God. And this statement renewed Gladys' faith and soul as she knelt down to pray. And shortly after, a Chinese officer actually <laughs> on a boat crossed the river and asked him, like, what are you guys doing here? And she explained her business about how she was fleeing from the Japanese soldiers. And the Chinese officers let her and the orphans on the boats and carried them across the river into safety. And as we're about to read shortly, Jesus is about to enter his own wilderness experience where his faith in God is about to be tried tested and put to its limits. But before we begin to see how Jesus stands strong, uh, let us read our passage today uh, from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Here's the word of the Lord. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter, being Satan, came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, that they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, 
and serve him alone. And then the devil left him, and angels came and tended Jesus. Now, after the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, you can go to the next slide, please. Um, as our passage shows, Jesus is, of course, confronted by Satan. And during this moment of physical weakness, Satan presents Jesus with three separate temptations. There have been, I think, many interpretations on these temptations, uh, but the ones I feel the most that, sorry, the ones I feel that follow the text the most closely and still sort of speak into our modern lives are these three temptations. The temptation of security, the temptation of manipulation, and the temptation of ease. So let's start with the first one, uh, the temptation of security. In verse 3, we see that at the tail end of Jesus' 40 days of fasting, Satan tells Jesus, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And on a surface level, this seems to be a rather innocent test, right? Jesus is obviously hungry, so what's so wrong with turning the stones into bread so that Jesus can eat and nourish himself? But the true temptation lies in the idea of security. Will Jesus trust in God's provision, or will Jesus place his trust in physical comforts and security over his relationship with God? And the temptation of security is something we all struggle with at one point or another in our lives, uh, with the inflation going you know, absolutely crazy and the market tossing our retirement accounts each and every single way. It's pretty easy for all of us to try to seek financial security. But the thing is, we have to be incredibly careful and incredibly cautious. I don't think there's anything wrong with attempting to be financially secure, but when we place our physical well-being, comforts, and security as more important than our relationship with God, we begin to crowd out God from our lives. We begin to be so concerned about our sense of security and comfort that we forget the source of all of these blessings. And by doing so, we idolize security as the source of joy, as a source of security and satisfaction in our lives. And in our passage, Satan he uses the same exact tactic. Satan wanted Jesus to focus on his hunger and to forget about God's provision. Satan is trying to make Jesus put his own comfort and security first, rather than trusting that God will provide. And so, how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which Jody, you so preciously read for us earlier, by saying that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this shows us two things. Well, first, we, we still need to eat bread, right? We, can't, we, need, we still need to survive. But our second thing he reveals is that our deepest and most satisfying need is a deep and personal connection to God. And it is only through this connection that we can find true joy and satisfaction. And one of the most beautiful aspects of the Lenten season is that we're all encouraged in these 40 days to embark on a fast like Jesus, to give something up. And the reason we're to do so is because it reminds us of how short-lived and how temporary the pleasures are of life. We eat, but of course, in a few hours, we get hungry. 
We binge a Netflix show, but at the end of it, we're left wondering, well, what's next? Uh, we purchase that one item that's been on our mind for the past few months, but after we kind of play with it and look at it for you know, a few weeks, we quickly realize that it loses its novelty. What is new quickly turns old, like a single drop of rain in a vast desert. None of these things make a significant impact on what we truly need in our lives. And so brothers and sisters, I encourage you to be nourished, not just by food, not just by Netflix, but through a deep relationship with God where you speak to him and hear him, to know each other as you might know a friend, and ultimately to trust, to trust that God indeed will provide and care for you even when difficult times are, are you know, right in front of us. And so that's the first temptation presented to Jesus. Moving on to the second temptation, the temptation of manipulation, we begin to see that Satan, he starts to switch tactics. Seeing how Jesus started to quote scripture, Satan thought, hey, maybe I might have a try at it too. And so Satan brings Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and tells Jesus to throw himself down. And then he quotes Psalm 91, that the angels essentially will protect Jesus. And by doing so, Satan is asking Jesus to put himself in a dangerous situation in order to force God to act. And this temptation is a particularly insidious one because it disguises itself as a pious act. Satan, he twists scripture and tries to make Jesus believe that he is still acting out in faith, when in reality, Jesus would be using God's power for selfish gain. The thing is, we have to remember that one of Jesus' primary goals and objectives is, of course, to save the world, to reestablish a connection between humanity and God. And what better way to do that than to jump off the temple, forcing God to act, and suddenly be swooped up by angels for everyone at the temple to see? If everyone, if every Jewish person saw that, then every one of them would believe that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And essentially, this temptation is the desire to be in control. We all want to be in control of our lives and have things go our way. And sometimes we try to gain control by manipulating God to act on our behalf, by placing ourselves in difficult situations and then kind of asking God to come through to come through and be loving and merciful to us. But by doing so, what we're really doing is we're placing our desires at the center of our lives and forcing God to the outside. Essentially, we turn God from the almighty creator of the universe to some sort of divine butler who kind of fulfills our wishes. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, back in college, uh, before I realized God, well, actually sort of did realize God was calling me into ministry. Um, at that time, I was studying to be a doctor. And in my heart of hearts, I knew that that is not where God wanted me to go. But I stubbornly insisted on going through with pre-med and going to medical school. And so the night before an important midterm exam for biology, I prayed, God, if you are really a loving God, you will let me pass this exam. If you care about me, Lord, you know, you'll let me get a good grade so that I can fulfill my wish to be a doctor. 
Literally, I, I'm pretty sure I prayed those exact words. And so by praying these words, I was trying to manipulate. I was trying to manipulate God to act. I deliberately put myself in a situation I knew God did not want me to be in the first place. And then I tested God's love and God's faithfulness to me. I actually did not pass that exam, which is why I'm standing before you all here today. And this is something that I think we have all been tempted to do. We have all placed ourselves in situations where we know we should not be and tried to ask God to shower us with blessings anyways. And why do we do this? Again, because it all comes back to our desire for control. We desire to dictate the course of our lives. We refuse to acknowledge God as our actual Lord and our master. And we refuse to acknowledge our status as his servants. We neglect obedience and we take God's faithfulness, love, and mercy for granted. And so as Christians, we are called to be obedient to God and to trust in his will for our lives. We must not forget that God indeed is God, the ruler and creator of the universe. We must not forget that God is in control of all things and that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we must ask ourselves, are we working? Are we living in God's purpose? Or are we trying to force God to fulfill our own purpose. But the last temptation, which is, in my opinion, uh, one of the most difficult temptations to overcome, is the temptation of ease. In the final temptation, Satan brings Jesus to the top of the world, where Jesus can see all of the kingdoms before his eyes. And if Jesus simply bends the knee to Satan, then Jesus would be able to accomplish his goal of being Lord of the world. And the devious aspect of this is that Satan is essentially providing Jesus an easy way out to achieve his mission. If just you bend the knee, all authority will be given to you, Jesus. Just bend the knee. That's all you have to do. And this is a real and genuine temptation for Jesus because although he's divine, Jesus also gave up all of his authority, all of his power by becoming a servant, by becoming fully human. That is why this is such a big temptation for him. And Satan is basically offering that authority and power back to Jesus. Why is this the temptation of ease, or why do I call it the temptation of ease? Because if Jesus bends the knee, then Jesus would not have to suffer the shame of the cross. Jesus would not have to be betrayed by his own friends. Jesus would not have to be ridiculed and murdered by his own people. He can be the ruler of the world, without having to go through any struggle or any hardship. He can save the world without going to the cross and bearing the sins of the world. And all he has to do is bend the knee. And this is an incredibly important temptation to understand. Because we, as Christians, we are called by Christ to also pick up our cross and to follow him. We are to embrace and follow the path of humility, service, and sacrifice, even when it is difficult. Jesus teaches us that it's not about the easy way, 
but it's about the right way, the honorable way before the eyes of God. What does this look like to carry our cross? Well, it means being willing to evangelize to others and being okay for being shamed for it. It means to put others before ourselves and to be willing to sacrifice our desires, our comfort for their sake, even if they don't believe in God. It means denying ourselves and following Christ, even if it means going against cultural norms or societal pressures. As Christians, we are called to be different. We are called to have a different way of life, to not bend the knee to anyone besides God, even if it means enduring hardship and suffering in the process. And although this sounds like, honestly, it sounds like such a tremendous burden upon us, the only way we're able to do this is when we know that we actually do not do it alone. We realize that this path we are walking on has already been walked upon by our Lord who bore our sins on the road to Golgotha. We realize that as we endure hardship for the Lord, the Holy Spirit within us gives us the strength to endure and to fight back. But what I love the most about this passage, something that gives me strength at least, is that God in the end will always comfort his children. In our passage, Satan tried to manipulate Jesus, tried to tempt Jesus to manipulate God's hand by sending angels to rescue him, save him, and comfort him. But what we see at the end of the passage in verse 11 is that God actually does do that. God actually does send angels to comfort Jesus. After Jesus stood strong in his faith in God, the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. God desired to comfort Jesus and to display love to him. And God, I believe, will do the same for us, but in his timing, not ours. And that gives us hope. For those of you who are experiencing the wilderness period of time, it gives us hope, knowing that God indeed will comfort us. Although God might seem far, he actually is not. And he eagerly waits for the perfect time to send his angels to comfort you. All he asks is that we patiently endure in faithfulness to him. And as we're about to enter into a period of prayer, I invite us all to pray that as we encounter these temptations in life, we first of all recognize them, that our eyes will be open enough to see that we are either deceiving ourselves or are being deceived, but also encourage us to pray that we will put our trust in God and that he will provide a way out of those temptations and allow us to overcome them. So why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come to you in this Lenten season, we are reminded, Lord, that we do not live by bread alone. Um, every single breath we take comes from you. Uh, every morning we wake from sleep is really a gift from you. Our family, our jobs, our friends, our hobbies and joys, all of these things come from you. And so we pray, Father, that as we are tempted, whether it is the temptation of security, manipulation, or ease, uh, that you will develop within us the strength to endure, to have the capacity to see where we have fallen short so that we can rise up once again and rededicate our lives to you. Father, we thank you for your son, 
that he has chosen the most difficult way to save us. It's honestly a tragedy that you raised him up only to have him be struck down on the cross. But that is the extent of your love for us and how far you are willing to go for us. And so be with us, Lord, as we battle these temptations. Uh, show us, Father, that we do not battle it alone. And Lord, equip us with your word so that we can always remain faithful to you. We pray all of this in your precious Son's name. Amen. <laughs>